so much to talk about on the opening bell with me, Alex Steedman, and Matt Christie. We've had a few days to digest. I'd say let the dust settle, but of course there's a sandstorm kicking up, isn't there, regarding Terry O'Connor and what happened with that scorecard, and importantly, what he saw or didn't see during the Ritson-Vasquez fight. So we'll get to that in due course for the latest updates, uh, Matt. But I think it's only right. We're lovers of the sport, and really the big boxing story and the performance of the weekend came from Tio Lopez beating and doing the seemingly unthinkable against uh, the wizard Lomachenko. You've had a few more days to digest and perhaps to appreciate your thoughts now. I think they're still pretty much um, as they were when we last when we last sat and had a discussion about it on, on Sunday morning, a few hours after what was for me initially a, a, a Quite a shocking victory, um, but without question, very, very impressive victory. I think kind of looking around and seeing other reports on it and hearing other people's points of view on it is that the vast majority of people um, still seem to be focusing on how long it took Lomachenko um, to get going. And there's kind of all sorts of Weird and wonderful descriptions being used. And I saw actually a tweet from uh, a, a boxing fan by the name of David Lee, who I know only via social media, but he said something that I thought was actually actually quite good, actually. He said he's just sick to death of hearing um, the, 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 the terminology like the matrix was was reloading and, and, and the computer was computing and, and trying to load all this information. He said, because if you were to use that with someone like Kevin Johnson, who kind of spent who spent numerous fights just kind of reloading and, and computing what was going on, then it takes on a slightly different context. You can understand that. I guess what he's getting at there is that Lopez has not been given nearly enough credit during those opening rounds for actually stopping Lomachenko from doing what we expected him to do so. And I think for me, that's the crucial thing when you look back at that fight, how very, very impressive Lopez was um, in the opening six rounds to neutralise what Lomachenko does so well. And I think the one thing, if I can kind of, if there's one thing I can cling on to in my preview in Boxing News that I'll hold my hands up and predicted a, I think the word I used, is, used was lopsided points victory for Lomachenko, um, was that if you can kind of take... Lomachenko's defence is his offence. And if you can take that out of there somehow, then you have a chance. I didn't expect Lopez to do it nearly as effectively as he did. But for me, that was his key to victory. I'm speaking to my uh, usual co-commentator, Barry Jones, uh, who uh, was telling me that because we said last week that after the fight that we thought maybe it was the the, the kind of height and range and and reach maybe of uh, Lopez that was posing problems for, uh, sorry, for Lomachenko, it was posing problems for, for Lomachenko from Lopez. And, and Barry was saying it wasn't so much that because Lomachenko has kind of got inside the, the reach of, of other relatively tall lightweights in the build-up to this. Luke Campbell, obviously, who he hurt repeatedly down the stretch in that fight and tried his best to, to knock out Campbell. And it was only a brilliant performance from Campbell that kept him in it. And against Leonardo as, as well, he managed to find a way to get inside. But he said maybe just the sheer physical presence of Lopez and the fact that he can bang, those two factors combined were what made it so difficult for Lomachenko to get inside. And and whether it was just throwing caution to the wind or opportunities were there in the second half of the fight, I, I don't know. But there's no doubt that the, the size and the way that Lopez went about it, that set the template for the first half of the fight. What do you think was different in the second half that changed things up a little bit? I think there's, 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 there's a couple of things with that, is that even though you could argue that Lopez by no means kind of emptied his reserves, that, that, that what he was doing mentally and physically would have taken a toll. You could argue that perhaps he tired a little bit in the second half. I also think that at some point Lomachenko must have realised that he wasn't doing enough to, to, to win the rounds and he really, really went for it. But it wasn't... It wasn't in a way that we've seen in the past with Lomachenko, was it, where it's, it, it all seems so natural, you know, where he's almost like 
born to do it. It wasn't that he was forcing himself, and it was it was slightly unnatural for for, for Lomachenko. Um, it does. I still think I would still have real real interest in a rematch. I think I was kind of indicating on Sunday morning that I'd maybe even go as far as favouring Lomachenko in a rematch. I'm not sure I'm, I'm still as, as set on that. I'd certainly like to go back and, and see what happens. I think if it's an immediate rematch, that would work perhaps in Lomachenko's favour. I think also in regards to the rematch, I mean, I know Top Rank have posted some figures and ESPN have posted some figures that there was 3 million viewers watching it, which on the surface is very impressive. I think it's the biggest viewership in America in boxing since 2019. So that on the surface is impressive. I suppose if you're going to look at it and say, well, hang on, this is free. And this is supposed to be the best fighter in the sport and only three million watch, then perhaps it's not that impressive. But I would say they'll be encouraged by that. I would say there's certainly enough people watching it to merit a rematch. But ultimately, the big question on the rematch is, will Lopez want that? I'm not convinced he will. I'm not, I think he will be thinking that is job done. I've done my business, I've got my job, I've done my job at lightweight. Um, off I go and see what else I can do at a higher weight. He seems to be naturally bigger than a lightweight and you wonder i mean he's he was bang on 135 this time his, his last couple of fights he's been just over 134 i think 134 and a quarter so he's worked really hard his last few fights to get down to 135 but his attitude i, I think in interviews and, and at some of the post-fight press conferences subsequently matt has been really refreshing um i think Building up to this fight, I wasn't quite sure about Lopez in, in terms of his his attitude, his approach, the noise that he's made. I, I wasn't quite sure where all of that is coming from, but I think I get a little bit more of a sense of him now. And I, I think there's something quite refreshing about his attitude and approach to the, to the sport. And I think he genuinely will take on all challenges. If I was him, you've just beaten the guy who they said couldn't be beaten. I'm not sure you need to revisit that in terms of your career trajectory personally, but just listening to him in some of those interviews subsequently, I'm not really sure that's in his makeup. I think he'd just say, line him up and and I'll knock him down. And he was having a pop at um, Javonta Davis in that regard for taking on a supposed smaller man, Leah Santa Cruz. That's an interview that's emerged in recent days as well. I like that little pop. So he's maybe brewing up a storm uh, with Davies. That's a, a natural fit maybe somewhere down the line. There's so many names that have been thrown into the mix as well. Devin Haney as well. And the one that really whets my appetite, and I think it's one for maybe next year or in the next year and that is josh taylor up at 140 pounds that's the that's the immediate name and fight and wait when i think of the future for lopez that that's the one that really does get me going but maybe i'm pushing that too soon i think it's uh i mean i think i think lopez himself has said he'd like the winner of of, of taylor against ramirez and at this point, you favour Taylor in that matchup against Ramirez. You favour that. So you would you would think that, I mean, don't want to completely write Ramirez off. That's a good fight in its own right. But if Taylor can get past Ramirez, and then, yes, we can build towards Lopez. If Lopez can win another fight in the meantime, then all of a sudden this could be the fight that Josh Taylor deserves and needs to kind of take his career, to kind of take his career... Um, to almost transcend the sport, take his name out and become that kind of superstar name. Whereas, you know, we had, you know, Joe Calzaghe had those fights at the end of his career. Ricky Hatton had the fights against Mayweather and Pacquiao and what have you that really grabbed a whole nation's interest. Perhaps this is the one for Josh Taylor. Um, far too difficult to start predicting it right now. There's a lot of things that, that, that need to go on before that will happen. But I like that. And that is one that you would imagine could be made without too much, too many problems, whereas some of the other names that are floating about might be a little bit more problematic. I want to go back to the scores and I want to go back to the situation with the WBC because we mentioned that in the initial reaction pod at the weekend as well. The, the scores, first of all, they were four points. Um, that was six points. And then Julie Lederman's scorecard where there was a 10 point difference between the two. So she had Lopez winning 10 rounds and uh, Lomachenko only the two. 
I think we have to, do you know what I, I think we need to do on the pod is almost have an entire pod dedicated to how you, we, people score fights. Because I, I think there seems to be so much confusion in that. And I, I'm, I'm not sure sometimes when I see judges whether they know what it is that should be scoring fights. And I think lots of us have a different impression of what are the important things. First six rounds, there wasn't much going on. Just Lopez did a little more. A lot of his punches were landing on the gloves. Do you count those as, as scoring punches? Should you? And then it boils down to just an essential busyness. So I think there was a, there's a lot to talk about, I think, going forward on the back of this and, of course, the Ritz and Vasquez fight, which we'll get to in due course. It's a eternal, eternal, eternal conundrum in terms of how people score fights. And I talked about it in this week's issue of Boxing News in the editor's letter where um, I think the biggest... The biggest thing is is the question is the issue of point of view. Who has the best point of view? Is it the person who sat at ringside on the same side of the ring throughout the entirety of a bout? Or perhaps could it be people that are privy to numerous different angles um, and replaced? Do they have a better view? What can't be denied, though, is that they're very different points of views. But yet, from sitting very, very close at ringside, more or less on the ring apron for, for, for numerous shows where I've done that, is a different experience to sitting even three rows back. It's an immeasurably different experience from sitting and watching at home. Um, but it's also not always a matter of subjectivity. There are generally... A clear, you can generally say who's won what round wherever you're sitting, and I think that's the issue of contention, and that's that's perhaps what needs to be sorted out. In regards to Lomachenko Lopez, I think because as you highlight there, so many of the rounds were, you could argue they were fairly close rounds, particularly the first half, because not a great deal was going on. Yet Lopez, without question, was the busier. Without question, he was the busier. The last few rounds, Lomachenko appeared to be having more success. Yet Lopez was still throwing nearly as many punches as Lomachenko, yet Lomachenko's appeared to be more accurate. Um, it's difficult. I wasn't, as I said on, on, in the Sunday podcast, I wasn't as outraged by Judy Lederman's score of 119-109 for Lopez. Um, as, a, as, as some, some other people were. I could almost, not saying for one second I agreed with it, but I could kind of see where that card came from. There are too many cards, however, where I cannot make head and a tail of them. No idea how those cards were calculated and how those conclusions were drawn. We'll come to that in, in due course. Um, I think sometimes in, in fights... You know, Lomachenko struggling to, to get into it. I, I just wonder if maybe there was a, a, a small semblance of a, you know, a, a sympathy vote. Would that be too strong a phrase to use, sort of feeding into your appreciation or your, your merit for what it is that he did in the second half of the fight? And I think sometimes the other way around, if something surprises you, sometimes you give it more credit then perhaps it deserves as well. And I'm not saying that Lopez in this instance didn't deserve credit, but I think sometimes both of those facets can feed into the scoring of, of a fight for people. Yeah, and I think, I think the other thing to consider there is that through the, first, through the first six rounds of that fight is that Lopez appeared to be in control. There was no argument that he was in control. In fact, you could probably say, if you're going to be honest, I think a lot of people might have been guilty, perhaps even myself included, that when it got to round seven, I thought Lomachenko's going to have to do something here. And you, as you say there, you're almost kind of, you might give him the benefit of the doubt because you think that, well, if he doesn't win this round, he's, he, can't, he can't win the fight. And you're kind of waiting and waiting for that to happen. But what can happen when you're watching a fight is all of a sudden when the momentum changes is that it may appear, for example, in this fight, so say in round, round eight, 
it may appear that because Lomachenko is so improved in round eight than he was in rounds one to seven, that you will automatically score that round for Lomachenko because he's done so much better. Yet the reality might be that it was an, it, it, Lopez may have edged that round. It might have been an even round, but because Lomachenko has improved to such an extent in a short space of time, you subconsciously score that round to, to, to Lomachenko because of the level of, of improvement. I'm not saying that was the case or that's the way, or that's the way necessarily I felt at the time or, or, or anything like that, but you have to look at all these things and these momentum swings in about. And it can play tricks on you. And, and I think it's, it's easy, easy to criticise the judges. We should also, I said, and I'll make this very clear, we should criticise the judges when they deserve to be criticised. Yet it's too easy to criticise them um, when we're viewing it from a completely, completely different environment, completely different place, and perhaps more importantly, a completely different headspace. Um, it's 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 really really hard. But I'll close on this particular on this particular section here now, just saying that something has to be done because. We can't keep having these conversations after fights. Contentious scorecards, bottom line, take the attention away, not only from whoever's just won the fight or who should have won the fight. They take the attention away from the whole event, from everything that's gone on behind the scenes, from some superlative performances on the undercard. All of that gets forgotten. We're just talking about these one or two contentious scorecards. I understand why, but we shouldn't be. We should be focusing on the efforts of the fighters. Okay, and um, we, we've tried to do that over the course of the the, the pod and a half. I, I I think it's always going to happen, Matt. I think it's the nature of the sport and the nature of the interpretation of it, and it's the nature of the scoring system as well. The maths of it. I mentioned this briefly uh, before. If you look at the the, the, the Lopez um, Lomachenko fight, I mean. Uh, was it Tim Cheaton and, and Steve Weissfeld? There was six points and four points difference the, the way they saw it. So two points effectively different. That's only one round between them. And although there was four points between Steve Weissfeld's and, and Lederman's card, that's really only, if you're, if you're not giving 10 tens, that's only two rounds of a difference. So if you take one round, if you give one round to one guy, you're effectively taking it away from the other guy on the scorecards. And I think you're always going to get that compounded effect alongside the fact that boxing is open to interpretation. I think it's always going to be there, personally. I think what we don't want to be there are the cards that just don't tally with the other judges or with the general consensus of opinion of people who watch the fight. And that will be, I think, the case in the flavour of Ritz and Vasquez. But we'll come to that in due course. I just want to finish up with the, the WBC um, Lopez situation. I saw afterwards he, th there was a nice um, video of him giving his father a WBC belt. I think there may have been more than one on hand on the night as, as well. I did send um, a tweet to... Uh, Mauricio Suleiman, uh, to ask him a, a serious question, genuine question, um, which WBC belt was actually on the line at the weekend? And I know Lomachenko was the franchise champion going into it, so who's the franchise champion now? I asked him both those questions. I didn't get a response. I, I know you sent him a text as well. What luck did you have? Uh, yeah, very, yeah, yeah, similar, to be honest. I mean, I mean, Mauricio, Mauricio is always really good. Um, for, 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 all, for all his critics, he's always really good at answering the tough questions. Even if you don't like the answers, he will always take time to answer them. And, but I, as yet, I haven't heard back from him on this one. I mean, for me, it's, it's kind of it's not the end of the world. I think what, what Lopez did has proved that he's the best lightweight in the world, without question. But you have got this kind of confusion hanging over it. That It's generally now widely being reported that... Lopez now has all four belts, yet due to the confusion created by the WBC's introduction of the franchise championship, which if memory serves me correctly, that's not a belt that can be won or lost in the ring. And that was the only lightweight championship that uh, Vasily Lomachenko went into the ring with. Then exactly what lightweight championship did Teofimo Lopez leave the ring with if by just beating Lomachenko? Because Devin Haney on the WBC ratings is listed as their 
world champion. There's an impending fight for the interim championship between Luke Campbell and Ryan Garcia in uh, December. Um, so we've got a situation where there could potentially be three champions. This does, this does need to be clarified. It absolutely needs to be clarified. And I would hope that the outcome is that the franchise championship is an absolute load of nonsense that they do away with immediately. Because Mauricio has, on more than one occasion, criticised the World Boxing Association for the amount of champions that they recognise in a division. This is going down a very, very similar road as the WBA, who for a long time, due to their championship policy, have been regarded as a joke. Now, I'm not going to stand here, I'm not going to sit here and criticise the WBC in every single policy. A lot of what they do is better than they get credit for. But what this does when they've got the franchise championship, which is effectively in their shop window, all these championships are, 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 the, are the sanctioning bodies' shop windows. This is what everyone sees. If there's so many of them, it's a situation of utter chaos. It's a shame we're talking about it because, again, we don't want to take anything away from Lopez, who was terrific the way he went about it and what he proved at the weekend. But it is, and particularly for... Uh, casual fans, it, it must just be mind-boggling. And he's, of course, he's one of three WBA champions now as well, alongside Javonta Davis and also Juan Mendy. So it's absolutely ludicrous. And and a lot of boxing fans will be, and sports fans are probably saying, let's call the whole thing off. But uh, whether that's going to happen and when it would, who knows? But uh, Lopez on his way up and we look forward to the next instalment against whoever at whatever weight so many options for him Matt and he's going to be headline material for uh, you the magazine podcast people the media they, he's in business now yeah he really is and as you kind of said um, a little while ago about how impressed you've been with kind of his post fight conduct and, and, and everything that he's been saying he does seem to have that genuine star appeal and I think this is why it would also be a little bit, I'd find the rematch interesting because I don't think anyone can deny that this was an upset. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, you'll remember where you were for the rest of your life when that happened kind of upset, but it was a big upset. So what, there are several factors that occur in an upset. It, it's, and one, one, and it's one of the rarest ones, is that the person who is responsible for the upset, the one on the right side of the upset, actually turns out to be a superstar. This, is, this, this could be the case with Lopez, in the same way that when Cassius Clay upset Sonny Liston in 1964, that wasn't a one-off, that wasn't a fluke result, that was Cassius Clay announcing he was, he was one of the world's greatest fighters. I don't think this is going to be a situation, because there's still a lot of people out there picking Lomachenko to kind of come to life in the first round of a rematch and, 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 and kind of finish what he started and win convincingly. I'm not sure that would be the situation. I'm not sure this is a Andy Ruiz against Anthony Joshua kind of situation in terms of, in terms of the, the, the favourite can just kind of reassert himself, regain a bit of focus that he'd lost, regain a bit of concentration and then start the first round as if the first fight had never happened in the way that Joshua did against Ruiz. I think if we're going to presume that's the case, then we're doing... The efforts, the talent, and the mindset of, of Teofimo Lopez, a huge, grotesque disservice. Okay, let's move on to the other big talking point over the weekend, and that was Lewis Ritson against Miguel Vasquez. Uh, Lewis Ritson uh, was adjudged the winner on two of the, the scorecards. They were Marcus McDonald and Terry O'Connor. Uh, Michael Alexander gave it to Vasquez by two points. Uh, it was Marcus McDonald who gave it to Ritson by three points, and Terry O'Connor who gave it to Ritson by six points. I, I suppose you beg the question, if we're going to take issue with... Terry O'Connor's scorecard, should we be mentioning the name of Marcus McDonald as, as well? There's only a round and a half difference between the two of them, if you look at it that way. But it, it was the fact that well, there was uh, evidence both in the fight film and indeed on social media that Terry O'Connor on more than one occasion was not looking at the fight and he was looking at something in his hand. Twitter went mad. The suggestion was he had a phone with him ringside. That is inconclusive. Matt, you've watched the fight film a, cu a couple of times. Your reaction at 
a few days on before we get to some reaction from Robert Smith from the British Boxing Board of Control? Yeah, um, I mean, my reaction is, I mean, on, on, on Sunday when we discussed it, I'd, I'd watched the fight without scoring it. I'd watched it again. I've now watched, I, I mean, I've watched it maybe three or four times in the last, in the last two days. One kind of just kind of looking at what Terry O'Connor is doing um, and also then to, 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 to keep scoring the fight over and over again. We mentioned the other judges there. So it was Michael, I think it's Michael Alexander who had it 115, 113 for um, Ritson. Terry O'Connor, 117, 111. Marcus McDonald had it 116, 113 for Vasquez. They're wildly, wildly different scorecards. Wildly different scorecards. Um, so the argument there that, I mean, on the surface, you could say, well, they're wildly different scorecards because they're sat on different sides of the ring. However, I don't believe that sitting on different sides of the ring stops you from, from, from just getting a completely different outlook on a fight. And the more I look at it, and the, the, okay, I guess the argument for those that that, that would that could somehow favour Ritson in this is that um, he was coming forward the majority of the time. Vasquez generally fighting off the back foot, going from side to side, but in pretty much every round, Vasquez throws an immeasurable, immeasurably more punches than Ritson. All land, granted, but a lot of them land. I cannot see how you would only give Vasquez three rounds in out of the 12. I cannot see it. And I've looked at it several times. I've looked at it several, several times. I just, I just don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. And this to me is, is where we kind of can start to go onto some find a slightly dangerous ground in regards to the British Boxing Board of Control. I have immense respect for, for the British Boxing Board of Control and what Robert Smith does. And I understand, as he explained to us, what, five, six weeks ago, their policies on this in that they will not let the officials discuss their performance publicly or to the media. Now, I understand that. I don't think we should be putting Terry O'Connor in front of the Sky cameras um, at midnight on a Saturday. That is a recipe for disaster. However, I think that how Terry O'Connor justifies this needs to be heard. And I'll say it, and, and it's not just this fight, and I don't want to speak badly of Terry O'Connor, but this is not the first time that his name has been mentioned with mind-boggling decisions. Um, there's, there's a whole list of them. Now, as a consequence of those, his reputation has got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse to the point, if we're honest, he's almost a bit of a joke figure. Is that fair on Terry O'Connor or does it look good on the governing body that employs him? Terry O'Connor has seen his reputation snowball to such an extent that he is going to be singled out all the time now. Now, I'm not saying his performance merits anything other than criticism. What I am saying is, is that surely we have to hear his point of view, both for his sake and for the British Boxing Board of Control's sake. That's my point of view on it. Just to reiterate, don't believe we should be dragging Terry, Terry O'Connor off his stool at the end of a fight and shoving a microphone under his, under his nose and asking him to explain himself. I do believe that we need to know how and why he scored the fight the way he did, because he might be able to give us some kind of information that we hadn't even thought of. Perhaps, we just don't know. I, I mean, that's my viewpoint on it. What there certainly shouldn't be is a trial by Twitter when all of the evidence isn't necessarily available and hopefully more of that will be revealed, unveiled or addressed in 
a meeting which will be held in the coming days between the British Boxing Board of Control and Terry O'Connor. And my apologies, I, I transposed the uh, judges' uh, scorelines incorrectly there. It was uh, Michael Alexander who liked Terry O'Connor, gave it to Ritson. It was Marcus McDonnell by three points who actually gave it to Vasquez, which was perhaps more in tune with everyone else. You've spoken to uh, Robert Smith about what happens next. Um, what did he say? Yeah, I mean, I spoke to, I initially spoke to Robert on Sunday um, in regards to the whole, um, in regards to the controversial scorecard and the allegations of his attention, of Terry O'Connor's attention wondering, um, which he was, Robert Smith was was, was quite obviously uh, disappointed by, um, yet he promised then to investigate. And I did, I did, I did kind of reach out to Rob and ask him if he would be the guest on today's podcast, just really so that some of the policies and, and what have you could could be clarified. He's agreed to do that in the in the not so distant future, but he feels that um, he you know he can't he can't go on record and start talking about anything until the investigation has taken place. But what he did say was that reports are now being received, uh, the contest is being reviewed a number of times, and Terry will now explain matters in relation to the contest in question. We have to wait and see. We have to wait and see. We know that the British Boxing Board of Control don't take these procedures lightly. And as 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 Rob rightly as Rob rightly said a few weeks ago, just because we don't hear about every detail doesn't mean that they, that they don't happen. Um, but I do, I do wonder. I do wonder if now there is an argument to kind of tweak those policies slightly, and that we do get to hear a little bit more about it because it's not just. It's not just Terry O'Connor who's being criticised on the um, on, on social media and in the news. It's it's the it's 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 the British Boxing Board of Control. So in one breath, someone will say, "Well, Terry O'Connor needs to be needs to be investigated," and the next breath, it's but nothing will happen. It never does with the British Boxing Board of Control. I understand that social media isn't the be all and end all, and crikey, I know that almost as well as anybody. Yet. Yet, 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 to ignore its importance in this day and age is being a little bit um, naive, I think. Okay, well, we'll see how we'll get a reaction from, from Rob and indeed from that meeting in due course. 67 now he is, Terry O'Connor. Whether that um, bears in, in any way on people's views or indeed what unfolds in the coming weeks or it remains to be uh, seen. Of course, we, we spoke to Rob on the pod um, a few weeks to go post the Dil Magani fight and he, he said that the board would look into the refereeing of a European referee on that occasion Giuseppe Quartaroni um, and he was happy with that which was kind of at odds with how a section of people viewed his approach to the whole fight but particularly to the closing stages of it so we'll see about that always appreciate and respect Rob's uh, approach to dealing with situations how that gets dealt with though I think is going to be the interesting thing let's talk about some of the news lines uh, we do have confirmation that AJ Pulev is on December the 12th at the O2 has been rumbling away and we've not actually mentioned it on the pod but it's out there now yes yeah and you know what it's, it's, a, it's a good fight. It's a good fight to um, to end the year with. I don't think we'd have thought that it would have been possible that, that Joshua would be fighting if we were still in a situation where there would be no crowds. Yet Joshua made it quite clear. He made it quite clear pretty much from the start, really, that he's wanted to fight in these environments. As always, fighting is, is his priority and he wants to do that. It's an interesting fight. It's not the fight we all want. It's kind of a necessity to kind of go back to the sanctioning bodies. We have to keep the sanctioning bodies happy, don't we? So in order to keep the IBF title, uh, Joshua will fight Pulev. It's a fight that was, I think, supposed to have been made, was it 2017 when Pulev pulled out and Carlos Takam came in? Um, Pulev is a solid, decent contender. So much ability, lot, lot of experience. Don't write him off completely. My fear, of course, with this is, is that we're so close to getting the fight that we've wanted for such a long time, the kind of be all and end all between Tyson Fury and, and, and Anthony Joshua, that it wouldn't it be so hashtag boxing if if it fell, if it fell foul at this late stage. Wouldn't it be 
so perfect for the the marketing men and women if Fury appears at the Albert Hall on December 5th and then one week later AJ goes into battle against Pulev as well. That that would be one for the storytellers. And we had Hannah Rankin on the show last week. She was terrific as a guest and uh, literally on the same day or within the 24 hours of her joining us, uh, Peter Fury uh, failed the COVID test. Savannah Marshall's trainer in that fight uh, for the vacant WBO middleweight title was postponed, but it's back on and it's back on quickly. And they get a slot on a bigger bill, a Halloween bill between Usyk and Chisora. That, that from a, a poor situation for them both has, has just got better. Completely, yeah. Fair play for getting that fight rescheduled so quickly. That doesn't often happen, does it? That doesn't often happen. But with the amount of fights that, that are coming up and the amount of intriguing cards that are coming up um, at to, to, to finish the year, um, that, that opportunity was there for them. Savannah Marshall will be delighted, no doubt, Rankin. Anna Rankin will be delighted about that. And, and I think the majority of fans will be glad to see that's a really solid addition to um, a pay-per-view card. And of course, you know, you mentioned there Tyson Fury on the 5th of December, Joshua on the 12th. And then, if all goes to plan, though, even the weekend before that, we got Dillian White against Alexander Povetkin. So... By the end, by December the 13th, um, the, the heavyweight picture could be clearer, clearer than it has been um, since Lennox Lewis retired um, yeah. in 2004. And that has got to be something we, that we welcome. Yeah, it's also going to make an impact on people's pockets with the, the, the pay-per-views and the run-up to Christmas. And if uh, the uh, situation post-furlough into the autumn stroke winter is having an effect on, on people, how, how that's going to impact upon uh, buys and of course we, we had Eddie Hearn on in recent weeks as well and I, I want to read out some uh, messages that we've had some reviews that the people have left on, on iTunes and by the way we're also on Amazon Music Podcast now as well so if that's your preferred uh, flavour then you can go via Amazon Music Podcast which I think will be flourishing in the coming year Paul Fulham uh, left a message say great to see coverage of the women's game he enjoyed uh, the Hannah Rankin uh, interview box fighter uh, saying great interviews and he both alongside Prince Pete they've said great chemistry between you and I that's what happens Matt if you Basically, invite a guy to your wedding who's going to turn up in an all-white John Travolta suit. Inevitably, there's going to be chemistry somewhere along the line. And a, a message. Uh, hang from- on a minute. Hang, hang on a minute. That wasn't that wasn't me wearing the suit, by the way. I was the guy getting married. You you were the gate crasher there. You were the <laughs> wedding crasher in your white suit. But anyway, it's a, sorry. He's a cracker. He's a cracker. Um, but uh, interestingly, another news line that's come out, and it's something that I, I wish had come out before we spoke to Eddie, and that is that uh, Terence Crawford against Kel Brook. It was it was murmuring, but the date's been set for Saturday, November the fourteenth in Vegas. That'll be for the WBO one hundred and forty-seven pound welterweight title, fourth defence for Crawford, who's unbeaten in thirty-six, and Kel Brook, who's won three. Uh, since uh, he had uh, that uh, run of defeats in in 2017. Um, Eddie said that Bob Arum had approached him to put this fight on Sky as a pay-per-view, and he'd said it's just not a pay-per-view. Now, Brooke is, is not... He's a free agent now, isn't he, Kel Brooke? Would Eddie have said that had Kel Brook still been with... With Matram, do you think? Um, I, I, I think he may have done, actually. I think even Eddie Hearn would have struggled to bang the drum for this one, particularly as it's happening in America um, and it's going to occur in the middle of the night to, to, to say that, that Kelbrook versus Crawford is a pay-per-view. Um, I'm not... I'm not knocking the fight necessarily. I mean, from, from Kel Brook's point of view, I can't believe the amount of fights he keeps taking. I think we had uh, as the line on the front cover was one of the one of the one of the lines on our front cover this week. Kind of nod to Kel Brook, his Mission Impossible Three. That's not that's not um, being disrespectful to Kel Brook. I hope that 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 much is understood. But in his last three world title fights, he's taken on Gennady Golovkin, had his quite literally smashed in 
then loses the weight to fight Errol Spence Jr. eight months later, the unbeaten and heralded uh, Errol Spence Jr. has the other side of his face caved in. Now he goes up to light middleweight and, and now he's going to go back down to welter at the age of 34 to fight someone you could argue was the number one power for pound fighter in the sport. Um, he's no doubt getting paid well for it, as he should though, shouldn't he? Um, it's, a, it's, an, it's an incredible, it's an incredible mission he has ahead of him. And at the age of 34, with his history of struggling to make weight at welterweight, um, I think that's why you can't say that this is a pay-per-view fight because the odds are going to be stacked against him. It's nowhere near a 50-50 bout. And another one, uh, the final review, and, and don't forget, folks, you can do that on, on iTunes, um, and, and please do want to interact with you. It doesn't have to be praise. It can be criticism or, or just a, a point you want to make. It can be a question. Um, and Jonia238, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that pr properly. It might be John EA238. Um, and he really enjoyed the, the interview with Eddie. Um, and he makes a couple of points. And I think it kind of links into this Friday bill in Mexico, which is a kind of flyweight, super flyweight bill, which I think in the old days would have been on Box Nation. It would have been a classic Box Nation uh, bill and people would have absolutely loved it. But let me just read that. It's a couple of points that, it, that he makes. Um, surrounding Loma Lopez and pay-per-views to come this year, he said Eddie really missed the, the point. He, said he claims to be a boxing fan so he can surely understand our frustration at no Brock broadcaster picking the number one versus the number two fighters at lightweight because he didn't think it would make money. RE pay-per-view fans already pay substantial subscriptions for Sky and BT on top of their TV licenses. I get that big fights need the pay-per-view money to be made and that's fine, but I agree with Alex. Eddie is setting a dangerous precedent considering pretty much anything worthwhile, any worthwhile fight pay-per-view worthy. I just hope the fans see through the hype surrounding certain fights and refuse to pay more. Uh, and then second point, one thing that concerns me about the pod is that a lot of the stuff is also featured in the magazine, which I subscribe to. I just hope the fantastic interviews you manage to get on the pod don't dilute the contest or content of the world's greatest fight magazine. Keep up the good work. So two points there. Do you want to deal with the, the magazine? Because you're, you're best placed for that, first of all. Yeah, I mean, first of all, thanks so much for taking the time to, to, to kind of comment. And, and of course, thanks so much for taking the time to listen and, and actually read um, Boxing News. It's always good to hear from readers and it's massively appreciated, the support, as always. I mean, from, from, from my point of view, with the interviews that appear both on the podcast and in the magazine, um, I understand that. I understand that it's not ideal for people that listen to both. However, um, a lot of uh, readers won't listen to the podcast, um, and particularly with someone like Eddie Hearn, in that that will appeal to a lot of readers. Um, and it also, but what we've got to do is build both platforms for us. We've, we've, we've got to build a magazine on the podcast and the, and the brand on the podcast. And we, we've got to build the podcast in the magazine. Um, it's kind of cross-pollination in a way, I suppose, is, is a way of doing it. But I'm always very, very conscious that um, you will get completely different things from, from both. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it is difficult. But for example, if there's a, an hour-long podcast and 45 minutes is with Eddie Hearn, what you will get in the magazine in the 48 pages is perhaps four or six pages from that. So it's just a little thing. And what something interesting, though, that I have found while I've been transcribing these interviews is they do take on a bit of a different complexion when you see them in print. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be appealing to everybody, but to me, I find that, I find that quite interesting. Um, and I think, but I think if, if, if it does become a problem for people, then obviously we will have two completely separate. We'll keep the podcast separate from, from the magazine. But we're just trying to, we're just trying to, um, to, to do favours to both of them. Yep, and we've got oh, well, we've got grand plans about how we'd like the pod to, to develop and, and hopefully when we're back at the fights, that will be part of it. So uh, look forward to, to lots of uh, new additions and, and features. I think the interview from the pod featuring in the magazine is an obvious fit. I, I think that that is something that really should continue. The interviews we've had on so far, the interviewees have been excellent. And Eddie Hearn was on the other week, of course, talking about um, pay-per-view and essentially saying... 
if it's going to do good business, then it's a pay-per-view and we'll do it. And if it isn't, and he mentioned Lomachenko even against Lopez that might do while it Saw three million people watch it on on free telly over in the US. The fact that it was on what time was it? Four forty-five a.m. or thereabouts matter. I yeah. think into the the, the wee hours of, of Sunday morning. And I suppose it's the same this Friday night into to Saturday morning with that uh, Mexico bill for boxing fans. It's like going to Nirvana when you get Gonzalez Chocolatito in, in action against Israel Gonzalez. You've also uh, got one Francisco Estrada against Quadras in a rematch. Both of now, them have, have either fought uh, Strikasets or Rung Visay or indeed Gonzalez himself. So there's a lovely kind of melting pot there. And Julio Cesar Martinez, who's been going through the likes of Jay Harris, Charlie Edwards and Andrew Selby in recent times, he defends his uh, WBC flyweight title against a replacement opponent in Moises Caleros. Um, Maximo Flores was due to be in the other corner. He tested positive for COVID. I think that's something we're going to see increasingly in the coming weeks and months uh, regarding fighters and, and fights being called. It's a fantastic night of boxing, Matt. But Eddie would say at that time in the day, 20, 30,000 people would tune in to watch it. So we can justify putting the money up to show it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think that, I mean, if, if the hardcore fans would make a very good point that they that they might come out in their tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands to watch something like Lopez Lomachenko, when you're looking at this bill with with Estrada and uh, and Quadras, it's 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 not you're not going to get that many watching it. I'm not saying it shouldn't be shown, um, but yeah, you're just not gonna you're just not going to get those numbers, are you, at that time? Which is a great shame. This division, this super flyweight division, it's one of my little, it's one of my favourites at the moment, mm. and um, yeah, really really enjoy watching it. No doubt we'll we'll find a way to watch it, um, and and we can talk about it in detail next week. Um, but yeah, it is a shame as much as, as well, I love the heavyweight division. Anybody that reads boxing news regularly will know that I love and always study the heavyweight division, but that does seem to snare all of the, all of the interest, doesn't it? One of my favorite boxing memories, 2015 was a really, really, the end of 2015 was a special time for me. I was out at Doha commentating on the amateur world championships. Michael Conlon won his, his world title uh, out there on that occasion. And then I literally flew straight from there, commentating on the finals, and flew straight from there to New York. Sounds jet set. It just happened to be the way it went. And I was, as a fan, otherwise it turned out I ended up doing a little bit of work for Box Nation on the night, doing some interviews. Uh, but I went largely initially as a fan uh, to go and see Golovkin, who was in action that night against David Lemieux. And that remains one of my highlights. But what made it doubly special was seeing Gonzalez on the same bill. He fought uh, Brian Valoria that night. And Valoria fought out of his skin just to keep himself in the fight. And eventually he was stopped, at, I think, in about nine rounds by Gonzalez. And Chocolatito, I think, was at the height of his powers. But he's shown since, particularly with the win against Cal Yafai, there's some perspective for you. Um, the way he dispensed with the fire. He's just such a beautiful, flowing fighter, Gonzalez. He's still got some game, Matt. He has. Yeah, he really has. And that, I mean, I admit that that FI result surprised me a little bit. We'll have to see what happens in the next couple of fights. I still think that the, the, the Chocolatito is in an irreversible decline. Um, but it is quite rare that for a fighter like Chocolatito after so long, spending so long at the top to, to suffer back-to-back -back defeats, second of which was, was quite a crushing defeat, um, to then come back and produce the kind of performance uh, that he did against Yafai. It shows and highlights his quality. Um, so we'll see how he gets on this weekend. It's a fight he should win, really. But at that stage of his career where you're just not certain. Yeah, I know Paul Butler was a big fan of his and Paul Butler returned with a win at the weekend. So when I commentated on that, Jay Harris did likewise. They're both looking to get big world title challenges again in the coming year. Uh, when you just last word on this before we talk about this week in history, um, when I look at Gonzalez, I, I think of the fighters down history who, who have looked 
most natural in the ring. When they, everything they do just kind of flows naturally. And when I, I put him in that category with Barrera, I would say Marco Antonio Barrera and probably Chavez uh, as well. Guys who, it just seemed effortless. You know, it almost with little movement of the feet would just kind of flow and change body position and the punches would just slip and slide. And I, I would put Gonzalez in that kind of beautiful, flowing, comfortable, easy style with, with some of those great names. You've got to. You've got to put him there. I mean, you, that, that kind of period of time that you highlighted before 2015, I'm not sure where he was at the time in the... In the um, in the pound for pound rankings with boxing news. But if he wasn't number one, he was he was two or three. He was banging it, the discussion, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was. And it's easy to forget that now. It's easy to forget that now. Um, but yeah, he was, and for as long as I can remember, really, in the boxing news office, if he wasn't one of our number one or our favorite fighters, he was there or thereabouts. We would have so many discussions about him. We would watch so many films and, and, and the fight footage. Um but yeah, I suppose, and as I said on Sunday's podcast, you always have to remain as impartial as you possibly can. Now and again, you do have little favourites simply because they're so good and so impressive. And it would be nice to see Chocolatito kind of go on a bit of a three or four fight run just to just to really, really punctuate what has already been, without question, a Hall of Fame career. Yep, he's well fancied to make it win number 50 at the weekend. And that would probably set up a, a rematch with Estrada, with Quadras or uh, to fight Estrada, both who seem to be getting perhaps better than ever. Time now to take a look at this week in history. And this week, we're looking back on the 21st of October, 2000. Is it two decades ago? It is. And it brought back memories when I looked back on that Wembley night. Danny Williams against Mark Potter, the fight that we're talking about. Dramatic injury. A come from the behind spectacular performance from Williams as well. And that was on the same night that uh, Ricky Hatton fought John Thaxton for the British title as top of the bill. And Matt, uh, one of Hatton's toughest fights. And that ended up in an absolute bloodbath. I have absolutely no idea how Hatton got through the cut in that particular fight. Ryan Rhodes, Tony Oki, Graham Earl, all on that bill. I think there was 14, 15 fights, Matt, on that Wembley bill, just like the old days. It was a great bill. And that's so when we when we put together the, this week in history and we look at the various things, and I looked at this bill, you kind of forget about all those fights. And that, that, that Ricky Hatton fight, I remember when I was speaking to Mick, Mick Williamson, uh, Mick the Rob, about that particular about that particular fight and how he managed to stop the blood from just cascading down Ricky Hatton's fight. Because you watch that fight again, and that is, make no question, that's a fight-ending cut right there in the first round. And if he, when people speak about Mick Williamson and, um, you know, if you're unsure of who he is or, or the art of a cutsman, just go back and watch, watch exactly what he did in that fight. Incredible. Incredible to keep Ricky Hatton in it. Well, it was amazing that Danny Williams stayed in because he could have been pulled out. Um, it was a very, very eventful fight against Mark Potter. You can watch it on YouTube, folks. I'd, I couldn't quite find the whole fight, but I, maybe if you scan down, you'll find it. But you can get the whole fight in three sections, so you will be able to watch the whole lot. And um, to say you need eyes in the back of your head to, to see what was going on as an understatement. There were slips, there were illegal punches, ruled as knockdown slip. There, were, there wasn't ruled as knockdowns or was it a knockdown? Injury, points taken off. And, and Potter just inspired that night. The plumber from Walthamstow was just on a mission with the British and Commonwealth titles up for grabs. And it really showed the, the approach, the effort, how much it meant to him. Mark Potter went for it that night. Mark Potter was quite, he was on the, he was on the brink of, of, of an upset. It would have been a huge upset at that point. That's Danny Williams at or approaching his peak. And you feel a little bit sorry for Potter all these years on in that if he's going to be remembered for anything, it's going to be losing um, a heavyweight fight to a one-armed man, in essence. And that, that, is, that is the cruel, that's the cruel nature of boxing, isn't it, with the winners and the losers 
yet. Of course, of course, the person that should steal the headlines in all of this is the one and only Danny Williams. And, you know, he, he's, we've spoke to Danny many times over the years and he will always reference this as his greatest night in boxing. He won't say the night that he upset the odds and knocked out Mike Tyson in front of the world. He will say it was it was this one. And But you watch that fight. I think it happened in round three. The KO happened in round six. There's points where he's being, his arm is being screwed back into his shoulder and, and what have you. If it was, it was, if it was to happen, if it was to happen in a film, you wouldn't believe it. It would be too far-fetched. His arm is quite literally dangling out at the point of the knockout when he scores the knockout with his left hand, which is which is just incredible, which is just incredible. Just to read this, what, what Danny Williams said, um, regards regards the end of the fight which is which is something that he's told us in the past he said um so the knockout was out of the window in my mind when it actually came the opportunity to stop him with my left uppercut came from nowhere and i couldn't believe it when i was leaving the arena i could see the reactions on people's faces and i was thinking wow i've done something really special when you're in there you don't really think of it but seeing the shock to the maze faces you start to realize the papers were saying it was like something out of a Rocky film. But if it happened in Rocky, you'd say the story was ridiculous. Absolutely right. Absolutely bang on. The shoulder came out in round three, looked like it, it kind of sorted itself. He wasn't throwing the right hand, really, but it, it, it wasn't hanging down by his side. And then in the sixth round, it is out of joint and it is just hanging limp. And all he can do is jab uh, and, and move and look to find a shot. And the uppercut comes from nowhere. And that is that. Potter goes down. He gets back up and then he's kind of bundled over a couple of more times. They're, they're called as knockdowns, but he's just still feeling the effects of that first extraordinary punch. And I think that, and when you look at 2004 later on, when... He takes a shellacking from Tyson in the first round or so, Danny Williams, and then the hammering from Vitali the same year as well. If you ever wanted to know how much dig, courage and heart Danny Williams had, you only have to look at the Potter fights and then Tyson and, and Vitali Klitschko further uh, down the line. It, it's a shame his career has ended up where it has because those really are the things, Matt, that we should be talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it is a real shame. It is a real shame that, that 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 Danny Williams kind of fights on in the condition that he's in. Um, it's unfortunately a all too common story, but I guess that's why you know we're here as as as, as boxing news to highlight that he shouldn't be fighting. But let's also highlight the wonderful things that he did do inside the ring. And that night, that night when he knocked out. Potter with one arm really should go down in British boxing history as one of the most extraordinary performances of all time. Watch it, folks, if you can. It'll only take sort of 25 minutes of your, your time, 27 minutes of your time or thereabouts, and you'll hear the commentary. Very young uh, Adam Smith and Jim Watt as well. And on numerous occasions, Jim Watt says, this guy should just step to the side and they'll call the fight off. Just step to the side. He's almost imploring Danny Williams to give up, and he didn't. And what we ended up with was one of the most spectacular turnarounds in fight history. Watch that. Danny Williams versus Mark Potter from the 21st of October 2000. The same weekend, by the way, uh, that uh, a 24 and 0 Floyd Mayweather stopped Emmanuel Augustus in nine rounds, and he was three months away from beating Diego Corrales in a super featherweight title fight. All of that happening some 20 years ago. Well, thanks for listening. Once again, we implore you to leave us some, some messages and, and reviews, whether that's on iTunes or now on Amazon Music Podcasts or wherever you are listening and hopefully enjoying. From Matt and myself, it's goodbye for now. 